Tonight, what we're doing is actually a little bit of a continuation from two weeks ago, which by the way, last week, I want to say thank you to Dustin for filling in and did a great job uh, with the study last week. And so I appreciate that very much. And, and then uh, two weeks ago, we started on chapter two, we did verses one through six. And part of what we were looking at, there were five straightforward, basic principles, sort of rules for spiritual family life that we started looking at. And we got through four of them in verses one through six. And we, we kind of just let off there because I knew that the, the fifth one was kind of a bigger one and we needed more time and we just didn't have time in one study. So tonight we're gonna look at verses seven through 11. I, I, I wanted to get all the way through 18, but as I was preparation, as I'm working on this, it was just, I realized it was just going to be too much to try to add the last part on. So we'll pick up there that next week. That's what I like about Wednesday Bible studies is that we can just, we can just take our time. And so uh, we're going to get through verse 11 tonight. <clears throat> because of that, we, we may be a little bit shorter tonight. And so I don't think that's going to hurt anybody's feelings, but uh Tonight we're going to be looking at <clears throat> at rule number five um, in in First uh, John chapter two verse seven. So let's begin reading there. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. It, it, its truth is seen in him and you. I, I want to pause there. I'm not going to take any time to talk about it, but it's a little interesting there because when you're reading it, John could be accused of being a little senile or something there because he says, uh, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. And then in verse eight, he says, yet I am writing you a new one. Um, and so it's a little confusing when you read that, but uh, I don't have time. I'm not going to take time to go into it. But if you go all the way back, Moses uh, gave a command that says you're to love your neighbor as yourself way back in the Old Testament. And, and yet then Jesus renewed that. And so the old command became a new command from Jesus to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so uh, it, it's not, it's, he's not contradicting himself. He's saying, he's saying, this is something you've heard that we all know uh, and that you've heard even from the day, <clears throat> from the day you came to know Christ. Uh, but it's, it's new because there is a new understanding and a new fulfillment of it through Christ. So anyway, uh, let, let's start with verse eight again. <clears throat> Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. And in communicating these basic rules for spiritual family life, the Apostle John focuses several verses on, on what really is without question the most central principle of what he's talking about here. And he comes back to this theme often during this, in, the middle, in this epistle, and that is to love your brothers and your sisters. Love is such a huge part of the theme of 1 John. Uh, and no doubt John emphasizes this rule because Jesus had, had driven the, the same point so deeply into his disciples' memories decades earlier, not only in words, but also in deeds. Uh, Jesus had made this command. He drove this command. And, you know, John is one of, one of those 
12 apostles who heard Jesus teach. And so no doubt his mind goes back when he's writing this to this moment. And, and John recorded this in the 13th chapel, chapter of his gospel. And he began with a profound statement concerning Jesus' own love for his disciples. In John 13, 1, he wrote, Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Now, let me ask you a question. Does anybody remember what takes place in John chapter 13? That's it. Jesus washes the feet of the disciples and he shows them the extent of his love. And that, that, that uh, I believe that applies to what Jesus did then and what he did throughout the rest of the time there in Jerusalem because it starts with washing their feet and ends with him dying for their sins. That's the full extent of his love. But, but it, it, the extent of his love was that it was more than just words, wasn't it? Uh, it he demonstrated this unending love uh, of, of his uh, through when he washed the feet of his disciples. And by the way, it's kind of a side note. Um, there's a couple interesting things in John chapter 13. One thing is it says that, that Jesus knew who he was and knew that he came from the Father and he was going back to the Father. So he knew who he was. And it says, therefore, he, he washed the, the feet of the disciples. He took action. Not he, he, you know, for us, we think, well, I'm up here, I'm in charge, I'm the leader or whatever. Therefore, I get special privileges. But Jesus understood that, that for him, it meant that he was there to serve. So it's interesting that he did what he did because he knew he, who he was, where he'd come from and what he was there to do. But here's the other thing, and, and you've probably heard this before. But Jesus is very, very clear. Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him, that because of what Judas did on this night, it was going to cause him unimaginable pain and suffering in, 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 in many ways, not just physically, but uh, mental and spiritual agony as well. And knowing this, Jesus washed Judas's feet. That's, that's a powerful statement of love. He, he wasn't just loving. He was showing us love that wasn't just for those that were close to him and those that got along with him, but he showed love for one who was, who was going to stab him in the back. He was going to betray him with a kiss. And, and Jesus, he, he modeled this self-sacrificial, humble, other-centered actions as a, as a sign of authentic love. He was saying, uh, this is what love is. And, and there's no question in my mind that that experience that night with John sitting in that room and, and having Jesus wash his feet, uh, I, I have no question in my mind that that changed his heart, his mind, and his actions. And I I'm, I'm strongly believe that John was probably never the same from that moment on, having, having that experience. And at that moment... Love was demonstrated to John. It wasn't, he wasn't just taught about love. He wasn't just told about love. But Jesus showed him what love really was. And then Jesus, you know, it had been one thing if Jesus had done this and just left it there. But then Jesus said something. He followed up his profound actions with some very clear words. And that lesson would be etched into John's soul forever. Because Jesus said, a new command I give you. 
love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In, in fact, there's another verse in that John chapter 13 where Jesus says, the, the student is not greater than the teacher. What I have done, you need to do to each other. And so th this, was a, this was a life-changing moment. In fact, the reason Jesus did this, if you look back in the previous, I know we're not talking about John, uh, but, uh, but in the context here, it just helps us to understand this. Uh, but leading up to this moment, on the journey to Jerusalem, the disciples were caught up in an argument over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So how did Jesus respond to that? He heard this going on. He knew what they were arguing about. How did he respond? He was saying, okay, guys, you still don't get this. Let me show you. He says, first of all, I'm the greatest in the kingdom, right? There's no dispute there. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. There's no, there's no question there. He says, all right, so I'm going to show you what it means to be the greatest. And he served them. That is so powerful. And, and so John, you know, he, he hears this and he walks through this experience. And it was a life-changing, life-altering moment for him, no question in my mind. And, and, he, just, and he realized that, that this is, is another way to discern genuine believers. Because not only do they commit themselves to obeying God, but they also have deep and sincere love for fellow believers. And the two of those are very strongly related because we know Jesus taught that love for God is shown by how? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, so uh, a, a love for God is shown through obedience. Then after that, we're commanded to love one another. So you see, there, these two are just uh, uh, infinitely intertwined as far as that goes. And, and so if we claim to love God, that means that we will obey the command to love one another. And this is what John is showing here, that the two are inseparable um, and, and that we are to love one another. But here's the thing. I don't know about you. Let me see if you agree with me on this one. But um, if you don't, that's okay. But I, I just want to say this. I just seem to have found that loving one another is a lot harder than it sounds. It is, isn't it? Especially the way Jesus said to love one another. Uh, in fact, love for each other can be one of the greatest challenges believers will face. Uh, you know, I mean, we'll love God and we experience his presence and we love him, but then we got to turn around and love each other. But, but why is it sometimes so hard? And, you know, I, I was thinking about that. I wonder if, if, uh, if the brother and sister imagery can help us work through this a little bit. But, you know, we, we may love our literal flesh and blood brothers and sisters um, while, we, while we love them. Uh, quarrels among siblings are stereotypically prevalent in many households. And sibling rivalries, you know, can... They can cause deep, lasting relational damage among family members. And, and what happens sometimes is we, we can treat our siblings with a harshness that most of us would never extend to, to non-family members. In fact, we're, we're kind of like, you know, have you ever had that moment where somebody was picking on your brother or your sister and they're actually doing the same kind of thing that you would do and then you get mad at them because I can do that to them, but you can't, that kind of thing. And so why is that? Well, you know, 
when we're really, really close to someone, like a sibling, we, we sometimes, we can, we can lose respect for him or her. Um, when, when this happens, we, we tend to view uh, his or her faults and failings in a more acute way than, it would, than we would if it were someone else. Uh, we, we might take more offense at things that they do or say than we would if, if we were not so close to them. I think a lot of it, a lot of this thing where we struggle with this, it, it goes back to dealing with expectations and the lack of a person fulfilling those expectations. We expect people that are closest to us, the people that we love the most, we, we expect more from them. And when we don't get what we expect from them, that's when we become offended at them. You know, for example, I mean, uh, if some, somebody on the street that you don't know walks up to you and, and looks you in the face and says, you're an idiot, you might be like angry to a certain extent. You were like, who's that guy? But you walk away and you're like, you don't lose any sleep over that. You know, you may think of it later just to tell the story about some knucklehead out on the street that doesn't know you that walked up and said, you're an idiot. But you, you, somebody that you love deeply, a family member, a spouse, uh, you know, a, 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 a pastor, whoever. Somebody walks up to you and says something like that. All of a sudden, it's a much deeper offense because you expect more from them. You expect something different from them. And, and so the higher the expectation level that we have on someone, the deeper the level of, of offense that we can receive from them. And so what happens is a person doesn't fulfill our expectation. Now, sometimes our expectations are realistic. Sometimes our expectations are not. But either way, it doesn't make any difference because we can, we can pick up that offense. And the, the closer we are to someone, what happens is the closer we are, the more aware we become of their shortcomings. And as we become more aware of their shortcomings, uh, yet at the same time, we continue to place high expectations upon them in regard to the way that we think that they should live and talk and, and treat us and treat other people. And we have these high expectations for certain people and our intimacy with them helps us see clearly that when they don't meet those expectations and, and in that moment, what happens is an offense is born and division is created. And, and, the, the, and the same is true, not only of our flesh and blood, blood siblings, but it's also true, sometimes even more so, of our spiritual brothers and sisters. And so we, as we rightly develop close bonds with our spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ, that intimacy can inadvertently cause us to treat each other with disrespect. And it's easy then to begin to let pride creep in because we compare ourselves to them and we think we're better than them or, or uh, maybe vice versa. Um, and, and so what happens is it, being with others doesn't translate into being for them. You see, because we're not just called to be with one another, we're called to be for one another. Uh, and closeness then has bred antagonism rather than advocacy. That I'm, I'm to be for you. I'm to be doing everything I can to help you, to help you grow, to, be, to help you reach that next level, to move forward, to jump ahead, to, to, to excel in life, to do everything, everything better. Uh, and, but, but sometimes uh, it turns into petty jealousy and it turns into antagonism because I know your faults. And so then I'm like, 
well, they don't deserve that, so why should I be for them? And, and so this is one of the things that happens, I think. And, and, and when that happens, it's impossible for us to be heading unto Christ-likeness together. And of course, there are plenty of other reasons that cause Christians to fall out with each other, you know, such as theological disagreements. Sometimes those can become so sharp and we, we you know, uh, and, and we, we, we turn the other person into an enemy. But listen, even if their theology is wrong and anti-biblical and they don't understand who Jesus is, I cannot turn that person into my enemy because I have to find a way to hopefully redeem them, help them find the truth. But there are other reasons, uh, differences of opinion over how church should be run. run. You know, that happens all the time. Uh, church splits that take place. I, I, I've heard uh, Dr. Rutland say many, many times in his teaching, he said, when it comes to to church division and church fights and that sort of thing. He said, here's the thing. He said, the thing is never really the thing. Whatever the argument is about is not really what the argument's about. So for example, you know, we all know there are churches historically that have split over things as petty as the color of the carpet. Okay, well, listen, here's the truth. The color of the carpet was not really the issue. What was at issue was who gets to decide what color the carpet will be. It's about power and control. And that's, that's what happens. And so differences of opinion then can, can, uh, uh, can arise and cause divisions within the church. It can be things like politics. It can be things like parenting. I mean, many, many other things. The list is practically endless. But part of the pain of such disagreements is that, is that we're supposed to be united. You know, we're, and when I say dis disagreements, I'm not saying that we have to agree on everything. I'm not talking about uniformity, but there's a difference between uniformity and unity. Uniformity is where everybody has to conform and look and act and be exactly the same. But unity is when we look at each other and say, okay, we're not going to agree on everything, but we do agree on what our purpose is. We do agree on what our mission is. We do agree on what we're doing in life and where we're trying to go as a church. And so we're together in unity, even though we may have minor disagreements. But, but when we're not united, when we are not of one mind, the way Paul said in Philippians 2, 2, then that hurts. And when we add hurt to our differences, that's when division can set in. Nonetheless, here's the truth. Our divisions can be overcome by love. Every single one. I don't care how deep the division is. It can be overcome by love. Sacrificial commitment puts our own desires on hold in order to uphold another. That's what love does. Every parent uh, I should not say that. Every good parent knows that. Some parents don't understand that. There's some parents out there that think that their desires are more important than what's what the kids need. And, and those parents are not good parents. And we see that. We recognize that. But every parent who is a good parent understands that there are oftentimes when you sacrifice what you want, sometimes you sacrifice what you need in order to provide for somebody else. And, and, and when we have that kind of love, it enables us to put aside our own hurts and, and exercise patience and forbearance with other people. Um, I read about a story about Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. Both of those led 
uh, prominent churches in London back in the 19th century. One Sunday, Parker got up in his church and he spoke of the, of the impoverished condition of the children who were welcomed by Spurgeon's orphanage. But what happened was Spurgeon, when he heard the story of what Parker, Joseph Parker had shared, so what, they, what he was told, he heard that he had criticized the state of the orphanage itself. That's not what Joseph Parker was doing. He was trying to say that the children that the orphanage was helping were in destitute position, uh, uh, destitute uh, in a destitute position, I guess is a fine way to say it. But, but he was not saying that the orphanage was destitute. He was saying that the children that they were helping were, but, but Spurgeon heard it the other way and he heard that he was criticizing the orphanage itself. And so the next Sunday from his pulpit, he attacked Parker. And that, that incident was printed in the newspapers and it was widely discussed throughout the city of London. And, and then sadly, what happened was the crowds gathered to Parker's church the following Sunday because they were, they were, I mean, he had a big crowd because they were ready to witness his rebuttal. They were like, it's on. He said this, Charles Spurgeon said this. Can't wait to hear what Joseph Parker says. This is going to get good. But this is what he said when he got up. He said, I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today, and this is the Sunday that they, that they use to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. Didn't defend himself, didn't attack Spurgeon. He just acted in love. And the crowd was delighted, by the way. The ushers had to empty the collection plates three times. I'm waiting for a love offering like that, folks. That's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for the ushers to say, wait a minute. Play that again. We got to go back and empty the plates because we're full. We can't fit any more in there. But, but that is an example of a division between two Christian pastors that was caused by a misunderstanding and a hasty overreaction. And that ha that's the story of 99.9% .9 of the offenses that take place in the church. It's, a, you, it's an often, almost always a misunderstanding followed by a hasty overreaction. And then it just escalates. And if, and if one person or the other isn't mature enough in Christ to deal with it and nip it before it gets any worse, it just escalates and escalates. And pretty soon now you've got, you know, people on my side and people on your side. And, you know, I've had you know, probably every pastor could tell you this, but there have been times when people come in for counseling. They're not there for counseling. They're there to tell me their side of the story to try to get me on their side. You know, and, and, and so pretty soon it just escalates and you've got groups of, and, you, and what started with something that was a misunderstanding and a hasty overreaction now suddenly becomes a church split. But Parker responded to Spurgeon's harsh response with grace and love and that immediately healed the rift. It, it, it's so easy to respond poorly in the face of an unjust offense from a brother or sister in Christ, isn't it? It's so easy just because my flesh wants to react to it. You know, is anybody, am I the only one? Yeah, me and Linda and, and Sam. Okay, there's three of us. Rest of you, I hope to attain your level of spirituality. <laughs> no, I mean, that's just so natural. The flesh in us is when somebody does something or there's, and it's, and it's unjust, you know, there's no reason, no real purpose behind it. it my flesh just wants to respond to that actually not respond. My, my flesh wants to react. But Parker modeled the way we, we should go. We, we should respond in love 
foregoing the injustice. Just, first of all, lay aside the expectation that life will be just and that I deserve to be treated justly. Let's lay it aside and say, oh, you know what? I've done it to other people, so I don't deserve it any better, any more than anybody else. So I'm going to forego the injustice to, our, to myself and I'm going to seek the best for that person. That's how we heal it. And you know, failure, failure to love um, is it's one of the worst indictments of the church in the eyes of the outside world. And, and rightly so. Rightly so. If, if there is a rabid conflict and infighting within the church, then how can we possibly claim to be people of love to a world that desperately needs it? If we can't love one another, how can we love the world? How, how is that even possible? Uh, note, I mean, you notice in the story I was told you earlier, how, how, notice how the newspapers in Spurgeon's day reported his conflict with Parker. They were all over it. They're like, yeah, let's, let's just get this thing going. But thankfully, thankfully, the rift was mended quickly. But imagine how an ongoing feud between Spurgeon and Parker would have damaged the work of the gospel. Maybe neither one of those men would, would be looked on favorably in history now. Imagine how such a feud would have, more than that, would have dishonored Christ. Well, he goes on, he says in verse 8, that the truth of the command to love one another is seen in him and you. You know, in, in Christ, the command to love one another is strengthened, it's deepened, it's expanded, and given a depth of meaning and understanding that never seen before His coming in the incarnation. We did not understand uh, this type of love that He was talking about, the, not until it was revealed in Christ. That's when we really began to understand it. And now He's saying that same kind of supernatural love is being seen and experienced in those who love Him and those who abide in Him. But, but there's more in that verse. Perfect love as revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has dealt a death blow to darkness. You know, that's what it said. I want to read what it said here if I can get back to it. It, it, says, um, it says the darkness is passing. It's going away. It's losing. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel that way, does it? You watch the news at night, it feels like darkness is winning, but it's not what's happening. Uh, the, the death blow has already been dealt to the darkness, and darkness is on the run, and it cannot outrun the light. The light is going to win in the end. In, in fact, the darkness is already departing, and the true light already shines. John eight twelve says that the light of the world has come. And the reality is, is that the king of light and love is already reigning. He's already reigning in the, in the universe. And the fullness, here's the thing, here's the thing. We haven't seen the fullness of that yet. That, that reign has not been consummated fully because, you know, he, he's, he has to return. All this has to take place. But the fullness and the consummation of that reign is just around the corner. It's almost here. And how we love one another gives evidence to all of that. How we love one another is a foresight, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of the, the kingdom of love and light. And so when we love, it gives evidence to us, but it also gives evidence to the world. 
He goes on in verse 9. He says, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and, who, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. Now, the, the next few verses uh, highlight the absolute contrast between light and darkness, between love and hate, and between God and the world. Now, we're, we're not going to get to the God and the world part. That's the next few verses that, as I said earlier, we'll get to next week. But, but the two contrasts cannot coexist. One cannot have light and darkness at the same time. One cannot have love and hate at the same time. And one, one cannot have God and try to hang on to the world at the same time. The, this verse teaches that a, a person who claims to be in the light should then also be filled with love. And he shows the, he equates loving our brothers and our sisters in Christ with living in the light. And indeed, light and love are connected in the book of 1 John. John declares that God is light. We read that in verse 5 uh, last week or, or two weeks ago. Well, when we started. I don't remember how many weeks ago. Uh, when, we, when we studied verse 5, we saw, and you can read it, it says that God is light. And then in chapter 4, verse 16, he says that God is love. So then we see that God is both light and love in his book here. Therefore, it is not surprising at all that anyone who loves their brother and sister is also a person who lives in the light. Because light and love go together in the very person of God. If I'm in God, if I'm in Christ, I'm in light and I'm in love. If, if a person claims to be in the light while hating a brother or sister, he says, then the, the claim to be in the light is false. That person is still in darkness. The, have you ever known anybody that says, man, I love Jesus, but I just can't stand the church. I love Jesus, but I hate the church. The person who says that, I'm here to tell you the reality is they do not really love Jesus. They can say it all they want. They can have all the emotions they want, but they don't understand love and they don't understand that, that it's impossible to love Jesus and, and, and hate the church. I mean, first of all, it's kind of crazy because the church is his bride. So that'd be like somebody coming up to me and say, Pastor Dave, I really love you, but I can't stand your wife. You know, that's just not going to fly. I'm, I'm going to be like, well, then, you know what? We don't have anything to, to talk about. We, we're not going to hang out because... I like my wife way more than you, you know? And so, so, but, but, so it's, it, but, but the reality is a person who says, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church is a, is a person who does not understand you cannot separate loving God and loving the people of God. You can't separate. That person is still living in darkness, even though they believe they're living in the light. They're deceiving themselves because living in love is living in light. And, and he, say, he cited the case of a so-called Christian hating a fellow Christian. And the, the, the word translated hate means to detest or, or abhor. It, it refers less to an emotion, even though strong negative feelings often accompany it, but it, it refers uh, rather to more, more of an underlying attitude that causes people to ignore or despise other people or to, to treat them as irritants or enemies. 
And so, the, you know, remember, John was written to these uh, people influenced by uh, Gnostic thought, and they believed that they had this enlightenment and that they were elevated, that they were better than these other everyday Christians, and they looked down on them. They despised them. And, and John is saying, you know, these people, they don't know what they're talking about. They're not enlightened. They're, they're, they're not, in fact, they're walking in darkness. And he said they're, they're not in God at all because God is love and God is light. Um, and so he, he, he's what he's describing is a sustained attitude that repudiates other people. It's a disposition of heart that condemns and criticizes out of habit. Have you ever known somebody that just seems like out of habit, the first thing they do is criticize and condemn people around them, that they notice the things they don't like? Well, that's a person that has not been shaped by the selfless love of God. And, and instead of loving, uh, sacrificial commitment, hate is self-serving antipathy toward another person. And here's what I know. If hate is committed to anything at all, it is committed to the destruction of its object. Hate enjoys seeing the enemy suffer. Hate, hate in, longs for his, the enemy to, to suffer misfortune. And when I say the enemy, I'm not talking about Satan. Satan, I'm talking about the person who you think is your enemy. So hate enjoys seeing their, the, who the, the person they think is their enemy suffer. They, it justifies selfishness and pride. And, and individuals within our churches who adopt a prolonged stance of hate reveal themselves not to be true brothers or sisters in Christ. So if you know somebody who says, man, I'm in church every week, they could be every there, never miss a service. And they could say they love God, but if they walk in hatred toward somebody else, they're, they're lying to themselves. And their hatred reveals that they belong to the darkness, not to the light. Uh, uh, um, Christians who love other Christians are walking in the light. To live in the light then involves living according to love. And believers are, are to shape their lives by this guiding principle. Love. Love. When decisions must be made, the loving one is always the right one. When we, when we need to choose between our own interest and the interest of another, love directs us to choose the other. And John says that those living in the light have nothing in them to make them stumble. Now, literally, um, and some other translations uh, translate a little differently, it says there is not, stumbling, not a stumbling block in it, not in them, meaning in the light, not in them. There, there, is, there is nothing in the light to cause stumbling. That is, John is, is, does not say that there is nothing in them, the believers, that will cause stumbling, but that in the light, stumbling will be avoided. And, and isn't that true? I mean, that's just almost a common sense thing. Uh, has anybody ever gotten up in the middle of the night and tried to go somewhere in your house without turning the lights on and you forgot there was something that was in the floor that wasn't there, that's not there, and you, you find it, you, you just stub your toe or you stumble or you fall and you crash and burn because you're walking in the darkness. When, when if you turn the light on, it reveals what's in the way so you don't stumble. And that's what John, that's the idea behind this that John is saying. He's saying, if you're walking in the light, you can see these things. You can avoid these things because you're going to be walking in light. You're going to be walking in love. 
And that light reveals all and allows the believer to direct his or her steps with care. And when John says that there's nothing in the light to make believers stumble, it means that love will never cause us to trip up. You're not going to mess up by loving. You know, you, 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 can, you can mess up by not loving, but it's not going to make you trip up. Since, since love is always the right choice, it will not lead us astray. There, there are times when maybe you'll look back and you say, man, I, maybe I just was taken advantage of there. That may be so. But you know what? In that, in that case, here's what I know. This is what I believe with my whole heart. There have been times in my life that I have been taken advantage of because I chose to act in love. You know what? That is between them and God, not between them and me. What's between me and God is whether I act in love. That's what I can control. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you don't use any wisdom or, you know, and sometimes you just don't have it to give or whatever. But I am saying that when we act in love, it's always a good choice. And, and now, listen, acting in love, that doesn't mean it's easy. It may be difficult. It may even hurt at times. Has anybody ever done something in love that was a painful act? Sure you have. I guarantee if you're a parent and you, and you ever disciplined your children, you know, my dad used to say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And I always want to say, dad, just don't put yourself through it. You know, but I didn't understand. I just didn't understand, you know, how, what, how true it was. That it is a painful thing for me, but I choose to do it even though it's painful because I know what's, that's the loving thing to do for my child. But, but, but living in the light of God's love is, is the safe, right, and true way that we should go. However, the hater is in the darkness, and so he says he walks around in the darkness. Now remember, the, the idea of walking, that is a familiar Jewish idiom uh, that describes one's um, life conduct. Okay, so this, thus in this case, walking in the darkness means that darkness defines one's being and one's doing. And John says that that person does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded him. They, they, think about this. The person who walks in hate, especially someone who claims to be a Christian, think about this. They refuse to grant to other people the same mercy and forgiveness that they claim for themselves. This is the tension. This is the thing. This is what Jesus taught about. Uh, with the uh, servant who was forgiven a great debt and then turned around and grabbed a fellow servant who had a smaller debt and shook him and, and threw him into debtor's prison. And he didn't show the same mercy. He didn't show the same forgiveness that he had received. And in the end, the debt was restored. In the end, he was not forgiven his debt, was he? So what, you know, for, for the person who's says I'm a Christian, but they refuse to give grace and mercy and forgiveness to someone else. And yet they want to claim it for themselves. In the end, God is saying, nah, no, that's not how it works. You're still in darkness, even though you think you're in light. They, they cannot see the light of God's truth. They stumble through life. They're unable to enjoy God's presence and un unable to enjoy his good gifts. And, and living in the darkness is, is to live by the rule of hate and lovelessness. The, the trouble with those things, apart from just being wholly opposed to God, 
is that they are not reliable gods, guides. Living by hate and lovelessness does not lead to good places ever. It never gets you to a good destination, emotionally, spiritually, or physically. It just does not do that. Hate tends to turn inward, and it devours the hater. This, this is, I mean, you, and you could, you could substitute unforgiveness for this word of hate here in this description, but it, it leaves a person an empty shell. It leaves them like rotten fruit. Have you ever seen a piece of fruit that looked good on the outside, but was rotten on the inside? That's what hate does to a person. Unforgiveness does. It, it spirals from one negative place to the next without recourse for any, any correction. And hate does the most damage to the hater. Yeah, yeah, listen, if, if I hold hate and unforgiveness toward another person, they may, they may suffer to a certain degree in that, in that maybe they long for a friendship or a relationship with me, but I won't give that to them. Maybe they're looking for reconciliation, but I won't allow it to happen. So maybe they, maybe there is a tiny bit of suffering that they experience from it. But by and large, what happens is that person goes on and lives their life and is never, never affected again by the, uh, the hate and unforgiveness that I have. They just keep going in life. They live their life. May, they may find fullness of life in Jesus and, and have an incredible life. But what happens to me is that I become trapped in that prison. And it turns inward. And I become a bitter, hate-filled person. And, uh, um, and, and that person is, by their own cho- choice, has, has made themselves spiritually handicapped and morally disabled. They've, they've lost their spiritual pers- perspective and sense of direction because the darkness has made them blind. You can't see where you're going in the darkness. Even, w- even when you think you know, you don't know where you're going. Um, they, they, to hate then is to choose the darkness and to shut one's self off from the light and, and to hate is to separate oneself from the presence of God. I mean, it's obvious God is love. So you cannot enter his presence with hate. So if I choose to, to hold on to my hate, then I'm, I am separating myself from the presence of God. And, and because of that hate, I end up separating myself from the fellowship of believers. Now here's, here's the question that I think that comes up in our minds because we, we, we use words kind of funny in the English language. Like we use, for example, love. We say in, the, in two sentences right after each other, we might say, I love pizza and I love my wife. And hopefully we mean two different things by those two words, even though we use the word love twice. And it's the same kind of thing with hate. Because we say, man, I hate onions. And, and I'm right there, man. I, I, I like them cooked, but I don't, I hate raw onions. But then, you know, to, you know, you turn around and apply that to a person, that's a whole different meaning, isn't it? So what happens is we sometimes get ourselves confused and we say, what does this mean then? How, how does this look? So here's the question I think that maybe comes to our mind. What happens if you just really dislike another Christian? That's, that's the question. Does this mean 
that you're not really a believer? Well, I just don't believe these verses are talking about necessarily disliking a disagreeable Christian or brother or sister. In fact, there will, there will always be people whom we will not like. We don't get along with the best. You know, maybe we just probably, I hate to tell you this, this is the really hard part for us to swallow. Usually it's because they're a lot more like you than you want to admit. <laughs> And, and so you rub each other the wrong way. And, and, and that's, there's always going to be people who just rub us the wrong way. And by the way, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. I believe that God actually puts some of those people into our lives. I call them sandpaper people. He puts sandpaper people in our lives. And, and if we respond to those people in a way that honors God, in a way that reflects His grace and love and mercy, then what happens is to do that, it means I'm going to put myself on the back burner. I'm going to put them first and I'm going to be growing in that process. And he's going to use them to sandpaper, sandpaper away those rough spots in my life, those selfish spots. Anybody else besides me have selfish spots that need to be sanded away? Sometimes God uses people around me because if, if I were to respond in a way that honors God, I'm going to put them first. And so he's working that into me. He's massaging that into to be other centered instead of me centered. And he's going to sandpaper paper away those self-serving places inside our lives. So, so it's not necessarily a bad thing that somebody rubs you the wrong way. And that's not the same thing as hating them either. Not even remotely the same. John's words focus on the attitude that causes us to ignore or despise others. If you, if you can't stand the sight of that believer when they walk in the church, you need to get to the altar and get things right. And you need to go to that person and make things right. Now, you know, but that doesn't mean because, but there's also people that you, you don't dislike. It's just that if you're around them very long, you get flustered. You see, there's a big difference. Are you with me? All right. Um, but John focuses, the words he focus, uses focus on the attitude that causes us to treat others as irritants or competitors or enemies. But we have to remember, and this, this is, we've talked about this, I know you've heard it so many times, but Christian love is not a feeling. It's, it's a choice that we make. It's an action that we take. That's what Jesus showed. He didn't just say that he loved. He didn't just tell his disciples he loved them. What did he do? He washed their feet. He took the place of, a, of the lowliest servant in the household and he, and he served them in a way that to the disciples, and Peter was, at least was honest about it, it was almost humiliating to them to have Jesus doing this for, for one reason, because I can't help but think that they're sitting there thinking, I should have done this. If Jesus is doing this, I should have done this, but I was so blind to it. So we, it's not a feeling, it's a choice. And we can choose to be concerned with people's well-being and treat them with respect, whether or not we feel affection toward them. And as we decide to act in a loving way, God will help us express our love. And I, I think that's one of the things that we have to learn is that very often uh, the feelings of love will follow the action of love. 
The feelings of affection will come as you serve. Um, and, and, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've told this like with married couples that were struggling in the relationship. I would tell them, one spouse or the other, I would say, listen, they say, I just don't feel, they just don't feel the same. I tell them, okay, well, here's what you need to do. You act in love. You find ways to serve. You do acts of love. Go out of your way constantly, whether you feel it or not. Because what happens is those actions begin to stir something up inside of you. It begins to spur us in new ways. And as you begin to serve people in the body of Christ, you, it, it's, you're investing yourself in them. And as you invest yourself in them, suddenly you become much more interested in their lives. And the, and the feelings of affection can often follow. But even if they don't, it doesn't change anything. I still choose to love. And by the way, this command to love is also a call to reconciliation. The, the test of obedience to the, to, to the command to love surfaces when we come to terms with those whom we have difficulty loving. The, the first step in this direction is reconciliation. In other words, the command to love is a command to work at relationships that have gone wrong. Not just to blow them off, not just to push them away, but to say, I'm going to do everything I can to make it right. Now, sometimes you can't, right? Sometimes you reach out and you want to try to repair a relationship and the other person, for whatever reason, doesn't let it happen. You can't control that. But as far as you're concerned, to love is to work at the relationship that has gone wrong. Try to do what you can to repair it, to, to make things right. And then one of the things, we're going to close with this. One way that the church can reach out to people ruled by darkness is to demonstrate what it looks like to live by love. This world is desperate for love. It is. I mean, listen, they're looking at all kinds of places. Our, Our culture thinks you can find it in sex, you know, in jumping into bed with somebody you find attractive or whatever. And and they just have this real confusion. They don't, they're looking for love. They're starving for love. And all the things they're trying to substitute for real love is leaving them empty and dry. But, but, but we can show them what it looks like to live by love. And it has a powerful impact. We read it earlier, John 13, 35. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By, by the fact that you have correct theology. No, that's not what he says, is it? By this, will all men will know that you are my disciples. By the fact that you go to church every Sunday. No, that's not what he says. Those are good things. But he said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. If you love, he doesn't even say, if you love the world, if you love them. He says, if you love one another. This, this Jesus-like love within the church is a tool for evangelism that I think rarely gets used. Um, because the reality is, I, I think it was Bill Hybels that used to say this, um, but he, he, he said, I think it was him, he said, there's nothing like the church when the church is working right. In the, there's nothing in this world like the church. You can go to any club, 
any, you know, the moose lodge, whatever. I don't even know what happens in a moose lodge. Uh, but uh, you can go to those. You can go to, uh, you know, a gang somewhere. You can, you can go to uh, some place where different, you know, a certain affiliation of people are there. You can go anywhere in the world. You can go to the bar. The bar is kind of the world's substitute for the church in a lot of ways. It's the place where they go to let their hair down and try to be themselves or whatever. But, but, there, but there's nothing in the world that, that's like the church when the church is working right. When the church is living in the love of God, when the church is loving one another, there is nothing, there is no place in the world that can replicate that, not even close. And so we as the church, when we get this, when we, when we begin to walk in love for one another and that spills over on love for the community around us, then it's, it's like a beacon. It's like a spotlight that shines on Christ. And the people say, man, there's just, I don't get this. They don't understand it. And it's like, I don't, I don't understand this kind of love. I've never experienced it, but, but I'm curious about it. I want this in my life. And, and, and it opens doors. And when God's people love each other in the way that Jesus loves them, people in the world will see that there is something real in what we believe and that and it is significant in, in their lives. They'll begin to understand our message and it'll have a greater impact because they look at us and they say, they have a love that's different than anything in the world. They literally, they lay themselves down for one another. They sacrifice themselves for each other. I don't understand this kind of love. And it shows them what love is really like. This love that Jesus had. How did Jesus show his love? Well, he laid down his life. He didn't insist on his own way. He made other people the priority of his life. He touched people. He got involved with people. In fact, he got his hands dirty. He got down in the mud to put it on the guy's eyes. He touched the leper when nobody else would touch them. He got his hands dirty. And when we learn to get past our feelings and, and our, our disappointments and our, our uh, 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 offenses, and we begin to love each other with this, in this Christ-like way, then we will have an impact on a world that just does not know that kind of love. They can't comprehend that kind of love. And that kind of love builds unity in the church and it also draws unbelievers in. Rugged commitment to one another. Being with, but not just with, but also for each other. Moving unto Christ-likeness. That kind of rugged commitment just stands out in a culture that is marked by individualism and self-interest. By, by offering sacrificial acts of love, forgiveness and mercy, the world can see in us another way. Rather than being characterized by the rhetoric of judgment and division, Christians should be known for their love. We should not be known for what we're against. It's not that we're not against things. Because if the Bible is against it, I'm against it. But I should be known by the fact that I care for people, that I love. That's the most attractive characteristic we can offer to the world. And it points people straight to the God who is love. Bill Bright, um, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, these days, it's just called Crew. Uh, he tells a story in one of his books helping to illustrate this truth. We're going to close with this. 
He says, two gifted attorneys had great professional, professional animosity, even hatred for one, one for the other. Even though they were distinguished members of the same firm, they were constantly criticizing and making life miserable for each other. One of the men received Christ through our ministry and some months later came for counsel. He said, I have hated and criticized my partner for years and he has been equally antagonistic toward me. But now I am a Christian. I don't feel right about continuing our warfare. Warfare, what shall I do? Why not ask your partner to, to forgive you and tell him that you love him, I suggested. I could never do that, he exclaimed. That would be hypocritical. I, I, I don't love him. How could I tell him I love him when I don't? I explained that God commands his children to love even their enemies and that his agape, supernatural, unconditional love is an expression of our will, which we ex exercise by faith. Together we knelt to pray and my friend asked God's forgiveness for his critical attitude toward his law partner and claimed God's love for him by faith. Early the next morning, my friend walked into his partner's office and announced, something wonderful has happened to me. I've become a Christian and I've come to ask you to forgive me for all that I have done to hurt you in the past and to tell you that I love you. His partner was so surprised and convicted of his own sin that he responded to this amazing confession by asking my friend to forgive him. Then to my friend's surprise, his partner said, I would like to become a Christian too. Would you show me what I need to do? Choosing to love may hurt and it may humble us. It may require us to ask for forgiveness and, and it may require us to let go of injustices, just to let them go. But God's love will overcome our stubborn hearts if we let it. And not only that, it will lead others to the God who is love. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we, we, we want to be people of love. And we, we fail so easily and and uh, we, we still struggle with being so self-centered. Uh, but God, we want to be more like Christ and we want this love to overflow in our lives more and more. And God, I, be, I pray that you would help us. We want to be people of light and people of love, that we shed the light of your truth on this world, but we do it with a heart full of love. And God, that we would live in love in such a way that it exposes this world to who you are and exposes this world to another way of living. And they, they begin to see what, what sacrificial love is between us that we have learned from you, Lord God. It's not us. It's not in us naturally. But, but God, I pray that they would see that in us and that you would use that to light a fire, to, 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 to light a spark in their hearts that they would say, I, I want that. I don't know. I don't know even, even know what that is. I don't understand it but you've got something there that I can't find anywhere else in the world. And Lord, I pray you'd help us as a church to, to just get better at this. Lord, help us to be uh, the church, that, that, that we would be in this community something that this community can't find anywhere else. That, that we would be like, he's, like the Bill Heibel said, that, that there's nothing like the church when the church is working right. God, help us to be that church and help us to point people to the God who is love. We give you praise in, all, in, in, in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.